Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s Adams Morgan neighborhood. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by restaurateur, activist, and force of nature, Genevieve Villamora, owner of the much-beloved, dearly departed Filipino restaurant, Bad Saint. Over its epic seven-year run, Bad Saint was one of the most critically acclaimed restaurants in the country, celebrated by everyone from Bon Appetit to the James Beard Foundation to the New York Times, and single-handedly raising the public profile of Filipino cuisine stateside and the Washington restaurant scene nationally. Thank you so much for joining us, Genevieve. Bill, I'm so excited to be here with you. <laughs> it's been a minute, girl. I, I, uh, it's just uh, great to have you in the studio. It is great to see you equally. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, the premise is very simple. Uh, we each have a wine to share with each other. Uh, Genevieve has brought along a bottle from the Great White North. I'm irrationally excited. This is our first Canadian wine um, and a French-Canadian wine uh, at that. A, uh, a cool climate red from a recently developed varietal called Gamma Ray. We'll talk a little more about it later. Um, and a kind of iconic in um, the last, within the last decade, Quebecois producer, Domaine Dunibal. Uh, I followed suit with another kind of cooler climate red. Mine is a traditional red field blend from an amazing female winemaker out of Vienna, Austria. Her name is Jutta Ambersich, uh, and uh, it's a Rotergemitzersatz, uh, which is called Raquette. We will taste through both of these offerings while trading thoughts about life and wine, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to our guest. If you like the sound of what we're drinking, both wines are available, as always, for sale, at Reveler's Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar. As far as I know, Washington's only wine and pasta bar, but uh, it is just across the street from the Line Hotel, uh, equally in Adams Morgan. Um, Genevieve, before we get down uh, to the wines themselves, uh, a couple questions about you. I feel like you've led a million lives. Um, what was your first formative memory growing up of uh, food or drink? So I was so happy to see this question on your list that you emailed me because I'm very clear on this first early memory of mine. And um, whereas there are so many things that I can't remember, I find the older that I am, the older I get, the less I remember about my past. I've always remembered this particular story that I'm about to tell you. So my first food or beverage memory comes from when I was four years old and um, I, my family was living in an apartment on the north side of Chicago, and it was the first place that I ever remember living in. Um, and it was on Polina Avenue. Were you, were you born in Chicago, Jean? I was born in Chicago at uh, Northwestern Memorial Hospital downtown. So this was when we lived in like my parents' like starter apartment on Polina Avenue, and we were sitting down to dinner, and I was very excited because one of my favorite Filipino dishes, which is called sinigang, was for dinner that night. And I was, my mom was like trying to calm me down because I was like wanting to stick all my hands in this bowl of food that was on the table. So sinigang is sort of an iconic sour soup of the Philippines. Um, Philippine cuisine is known for its deep love of the entire spectrum of all sour flavors. And sinigang is sort of, uh, it's probably a very, one of the most emblematic dishes that 
demonstrates that love of sour. And um, one of the common ingredients in Sinigang is sitao, um, known in English as like yard long beans or Chinese long beans. I feel like that's one of those, there's not a satisfactory English translation yeah. for <laughs> <laughs> And um, sitao was one of my favorite vegetables. So my mom's barely placed this bowl of like steaming hot sour soup loaded with vegetables on the table. And I see what I think is my favorite vegetable, these yard long beans. And I just stick my grubby little hands in there and fish them right out and shove them in my mouth. But little did I know that what I had grabbed and eaten was not long beans, but like a Serrano chili. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my reaction was pretty immediate. I just started wailing and weeping, and I didn't really understand what was happening inside my mouth. So my mom's like, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. So we run to the bathroom, and I spit it all out into the bathtub. And I just was like flushing my mouth with water from the bathtub faucet. And that's my first... I, I love Food that. It's, it's, so, it's so primal. It's kind of hard it to is forget. It's so primal. And you know what? I, when I th even though it sounds like very traumatizing, it didn't turn me off of that dish at all. And even as I tell the story, I don't experience it as a traumatizing memory. If anything, I love that it, it, that it demonstrates how from an early age, I just was like super passionate and had a huge appetite for food. I love that. It's, it's almost like an awakening. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like an, it's a mythic origin story yeah. for you, <laughs> you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis food and Filipino cuisine in particular. Uh, what were your folks drinking uh, with, you know, the various dishes they were turning out in their starter apartment on the north side? So, you know, I don't really recall, well, I don't recall them drinking alcohol that much when I was younger, especially those the age that I was when we were living in that apartment. So that was like preschool, kindergarten for me. I don't remember them drinking alcohol. Yeah. We were like, you know, soda was a treat in our house in the early years, um, all, the, all the typical big name brand sodas. But what I do remember when we moved to our other house, which my parents still own now, it was, it was uh, to a, we moved to a different neighborhood on the north side. And we, lived, we moved into a house when I was in, uh, about to go into first grade. When we live in the time that we lived there, as my sister and I got older, I do remember that my parents would let us taste wine on special occasions. Oh, wild! Like we, at young ages, yeah. you know, like 10, 11, 12, they'd let us have a sip of something bubbly on New Year's. Nice. Or if we were having people over for dinner and there was wine on the table, they'd let us have a taste. And I think that. Um, in some ways, it's surprising to me because I did have um, a restrictive upbringing in other <laughs> senses. Oh, with, your, was your family pretty religious? <laughs> very religious. Yeah. Actually, they just, um, I was home in Chicago for a visit with my parents, and we went to a special mass that was being celebrated at um, Holy Name Cathedral downtown for couples celebrating their jubilee anniversary which my parents celebrated this year and it was like over 300 couples that had been married over 50 or that had been celebrating 50 years married so yes they are very active um in the catholic church and in their local parish which just happens to be um holy name cathedral so restrictive in some senses but in other senses yeah. 
very open-minded and like very supportive of our wanting to be exploratory. And I think that also applied to wine. And though the wine that I know that we had in our house, um, you know, it probably was pretty commercial industrial wine. Um, I did always think of it as like this very sophisticated special beverage. Yeah, so you had an association of wine with celebration and with special occasions. absolutely, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I've, also a feeling of being like invited to the party with the adults. Totally, you know? I think I feel like that association is more important than the wine itself. Right. You know, the 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 thing itself is almost secondary to right, right, right. you know the the meaning that you invest it with, especially at an early age. Yeah, completely. Um, I was, I mean, I love doing digging on people I already know. Um, uh, you're, you know, all over the interwebs and have done podcasts like this before. I didn't even realize you uh, you appeared on Code Switch, uh, seminal NPR yes. uh, uh, just production. One yes. of my favorite all time podcasts. Yeah. Um, uh, but I was I was going through this and um, I realized, uh, unbeknownst to me, that there's actually quite a variety of Filipino fermentables that you know fall under the umbrella of kind of wine. Um, they're just not, you know, Western you know, grape-derived wine. Um, uh, Filipinos are getting after it. They're fermenting everything. So you have, like, sugarcane. You have palm wine. Uh, I discovered, uh, um, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this, uh, Gia Paul says, a bougne. This is like a, a tropical berry wine. Oh, interesting. I don't it, even know that one. Oh, uh, yeah. It, it, sounded, it sounded really interesting. So, you know, there is a tradition of, you know, fermenting things and drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't center around um, Western wine right, as we know it. right. Like, um, there's a spirit that we used occasionally in cocktails at Bad Saint um, called Lampanog, and it's a coconut spirit. And there's, like, a whole entire culture and a whole, like, etiquette around um, ways to drink Lampanog. And, like, all these rituals and traditions that are, like, very specific and prescribed. And and I didn't know any of that. Is it, like, a Japanese tea ceremony, but with, you know, (laughs) coconut fermentables? Or... I think it could be comparable. <laughs> yeah, just in terms of like making toasts and like who gets to toast first uh, yeah. and in yeah. what order do you serve people and yeah. how do you pour it out? Like just super interesting stuff that, um, you know, I think are, falls into, unfortunately, like a lot of traditions that are getting lost as, yeah. you know, elders depart this world and those things are not getting passed along as much as they used to be. Yeah, but then you have, you know, younger generations, um, you know, embodied by people like you that are kind of picking up that baton and, yeah. um, and perpetuating it in your own way, you know? Exactly. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, this, the food you serve is identifiably Filipino, but, you know, it's identifiably modern mm-hmm. as well in a really exciting way to me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you have, you know, led an amazing life, um, uh, you know, been a really passionate advocate um, for a variety of causes, particularly... Um, you know, pertaining to women's liberation and sexual health. Um, uh, did you ever imagine yourself in the restaurant industry? Never. <laughs> I think would be the short answer yeah. to that question. Um, it was never on the table for me as an option that I thought I would pursue. And I think that's probably because growing up and into my young adulthood, I definitely felt a lot of pressure having immigrant parents who made a lot of sacrifices to come to first firstborn daughter yes you went um, to a very nice uni I did here in DC and um, I think when I was trying to 
figure out what to do career-wise, that was always in my mind was, um, you know, everything that my parents gave up for us to grow up in this country and have the opportunities that we had, and also sort of all the expectations that went along with that. And, um, and so I just never really thought about opening a restaurant. It just wasn't in my in my list of options. Is there, you know, kind of in the Filipino community a negative connotation to going that route? Is it just kind of like, you know, couldn't do anything else, so I opened, you know, a Filipino restaurant on the north side kind of thing? Right. I think it's more that... I think... I think it's more so the expectation that I think is common across a lot of cultures where, you know, parents assume that their children will do better than them. So, and I think that's pretty universal. And um, so, with respect to that, I feel like our family was pretty common in that, like, both my parents had professional office jobs. My mom worked in advertising in Chicago for, like, over 30 years. And my dad studied economics in the Philippines, but then when he came to Chicago, he sort of remade himself and went to night school to study computer programming. And then worked in computer programming for decades. and, you know, they, they often took us to the office when I was a kid, which I have so many fond memories of, being, like, the only kid in this very grown-up space always and, like, seeing what my parents did when they were at work. I just always thought that was so fascinating. And, and I guess I assumed in some ways that, that I would follow in their footsteps and that I would work in an office. Um, and also... I feel really lucky that when I was growing up that my parents did take us to a lot of restaurants and that trying a range of different cuisines and like trying the new restaurant in the neighborhood, those were like family activities and um, things that, that was something that we did to celebrate together. And it was also a way for us to explore the city. Yeah. And, um, the, the role that my mom played in all these advertising agencies that she worked in is that she worked in the research department and her job at each of these places was to be in charge of what used to be called like the library. So the library in an advertising agency in the 80s would just have such treasure, a treasure trove of resource research materials and reference books for people in the creative department to use when they were developing various ad campaigns. So there would be art books, there would be, you know, there, there were probably subscriptions to over a hundred magazines that they would have. They'd have reference books and dictionaries and like all different kinds of printed material. It was then mostly printed material. Now I think it encompasses a lot more media than that. But so inevitably at these various, well, resource centers, they started calling them resource centers or information centers or knowledge management centers. Um, They'd sometimes have extra subscriptions to various periodicals, and my mom would bring those extra subscriptions home. Oh, nice. So So it was like a really amazing doctor's office, too. Yes. (laughs) It was like the ultimate, ultimate doctor's office. And so I grew up reading Sever. Oh, cool. The late, great gourmet. Yeah. Bon Appetit, like from when I was probably... 10 years old. Yeah. I watched Julia Child and The Frugal Gourmet and Yan Can Cook. Was was that always kind of the, you know, interest for you? You weren't reading Vogue or I also was reading Vogue <laughs> and L and Bazaar. Um 
but I think I was, I, I think I read the food magazines with even more interest. Oh, cool. Um, and to be clear, at that time, I did not cook at all. Yeah. I didn't know how to cook a thing. But I just was super interested. I really can't explain why. Was there a Filipino restaurant scene on the north side? No. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me because, you know, I feel like Filipinos are such a, an important part demographically of, you know, third and fourth wave immigration to mm-hmm. the United States. You know, but for whatever reason, um, you know, other Southeast Asians mm-hmm. have kind of monopolized mm-hmm. the immigrant restaurant narrative, you know, mm-hmm. particularly Thai and Vietnamese. Yeah. And I think that's, I think... I have lots of theories on that. I think part of it is because, um, well, A, Filipinos have a long history with the United States, which I think many people may not realize. Problematic. Is that, is that the Philippines was a territory of the United States and was one of the territories transferred to the U.S. after the Spanish-American War, um, which was the same for Cuba and for Puerto Rico. Um, so we have a long history with the United States. I also think that one of the defining characteristics of sort of the Filipino personality is that we're very adaptable. Mm-hmm. We're very adaptable. We're good at learning languages. We're great mimics. We have, we're very open to outside influences. And I think in the diaspora that that has really helped Filipinos living in the diaspora um, because they can very quickly and easily fit into their new environment. Um, I think because of that, in some ways, it makes us so eager to embrace other cultures, sometimes to the detriment of our own. Sometimes um, in ways that serve as obstacles for us retaining our own culture. Oh, fascinating. So you feel like there's less of... um you know, a, an onus on perpetuating, you know, the things that people miss from a former home. Right. It's like, we moved to Rome. Let's be Roman. Let's make kick-ass Italian food now. Yeah, let's learn how to fry artichokes yeah. and make, like, cacio e pepe. Yeah. You know, like, let's be yeah. Roman. Yeah, or yeah. Um, we have a friend who's a journalist, and he was freelancing and did this project for a news organization about... Um, Filipino immigrants in Europe and one of the people that he profiled was like a woman who had moved to like Finland and it was just amazing to me like you know like Filipinos are everywhere yeah they're everywhere and wherever they are they learn the language they like really do their best to fit in I think that's true of immigrants the world over um one time my husband Ben and I were traveling to Uganda and he was there on a work trip and I was tagging along and we were really really sick of the hotel food and we just wanted to venture outside of the confines of this hotel we had been staying in so we just started walking around the neighborhood and we were very surprised to find a Japanese restaurant there was nobody there (laughs) (laughs) which I don't know might have been a red flag, but we were like so excited to find a Japanese restaurant we couldn't resist. So we sat on the patio, and then this guy comes out, our server comes out to talk to us, and he's Asian. And after he left, I was like, dude, I think that guy's Filipino. And Ben's like, no way. And then he comes back, and then I said something to our server in Tagalog, and he was so 
happy. <laughs> he like didn't realize that we were Filipino American. And then he disappears back into the kitchen. And then he brings back like five other people and they're all Filipino, oh, including wow. the chef of the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, who knew we would find this like little cluster That's of amazing. Filipinos in the middle of Kampala, Uganda, yeah. you know? Um, How's the food? I don't have strong memories of it. <laughs> I think it probably um, was not the level of Japanese food that we have access to here in yes. D.C., but we were happy to eat it all the same. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, so what did you bring our way today, G? Uh, you, you kind of colored outside the lines. I, <laughs> I, I, really, I really adore that. So first I have to give a shout-out to Chris and Justin at Domestique. Because I strolled into Domestique, um, one of my favorite wine shops in D.C. on North Capitol and Florida Avenue, and sort of described what I was looking for in very abstract, potentially unhelpful terms. And they just honed right in on this wine, and it was everything that I was looking for. That's awesome. So when I was thinking of how to describe this wine to you in one word, um, there's one word that came to mind that sort of encapsulates everything about it to me, which is that I, I feel like this wine is like catnip to me. There's so many qualities about it that I find irresistible and that I often am looking for when I'm looking to try a new bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. So it's like a wine from an under-recognized wine-making region. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like the, the Japanese restaurant in, in Uganda, Uganda of, right. yeah. <laughs> of it's, wines. It's like a little-known varietal new producers. Um, you are truly the daughter of an ad agency, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, well, I mean, librarian, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I feel like just, all that stuff works. Yeah, it, it's, it's all, um, those are some of the things that consistently pique my interest when I'm looking to try a new bottle of wine. Yeah. And I think it's because at the restaurant that began to be sort of the profile of wine that we started to serve a lot. Um, and in the beginning, I feel like it was partially because uh, when we started out, we felt we had so much to learn about how to pair Filipino food with wine. Well, because there's no, like, you know, it's tabula rasa. There's no tradition of Western right. wine with Filipino cuisine. Right. And also it has such big flavors. Yeah. yeah. And so many things about so many of the defining flavors can be really challenging. Like it's, in, it's an incredibly high acid cuisine. Lots of citrus, lots of vinegar, very big flavors. Um, you know, some, some wines that, are, that tend to be super subtle or like speak with a softer voice just get drowned out yeah. by a lot of the dishes in Filipino food because the flavors are so big and there's so much umami or it's like can be spicy. Um, so... In the beginning, it was a, it was, we definitely had a learning curve in terms of trying to figure out what wines would do best with the food. And I think that over time, we started to see this pattern of, you know, unusual oddball wines doing really well yeah. with our food. And here, I really have to give another shout out to Amanda Carpenter, um, who eventually became our first and only wine director. Um, she started as a server. She was part of our original front of house crew and really grew into that role and was really the person who sort of 
defined the restaurant's wine sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I learned so much along the way from Amanda and I was very inspired by the very clear vision that she had for the wine program at the restaurant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, at the restaurant, we always tended to really celebrate um, surprising people and also like kind of playing with their expectations, both with regard to the food and the wine. Yeah. And I also feel like when people come to a place um, where they know they're going to have a new experience. And many, many people who came to the restaurant literally had never had a bite of Filipino food in their lives. So they're already primed for a new experience. We found that because they were already ready to try something new, that asking them to try a new wine was not too heavy of a lift. Well, I I feel like even, you know... uh you know, by an extension of that too, I think asking them to try something familiar almost feels like a letdown. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, here's here's a Bordeaux to go right, with your right, right. yeah. You know, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, you know, it's just like this cognitive disjuncture. It just yeah. doesn't it doesn't work. You know, yeah. if, if you're, um, you know, in this headspace of right. taking on something new, then right. you know, the wine the wine should follow suit. And, um, you know, you all gain traction for your beverage program. You know as a separate entity in, in a really amazing way as, as, the, as the restaurant, you know, grew and evolved. Um, and, you know, for those of us that, that um, you know, saw it at, at various, you know, intervals, that was a really exciting part of the, the evolution. And, you know, because you were kind of defining, you know, what, you know, this cuisine was and how you wanted to present it. And that, that was a moving uh, target, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we speak to kind of how you, you spoke to kind of the... Um, lesser known varietals that you know you wanted to champion, but you know how did how did service evolve um, over time at the at the restaurant? I think as our wine program grew into something that, um, for lack of a better word, um, felt more serious. You know, we really wanted to do the program justice in terms of. Um, having a staff education program that was on par with the quality of the wines that we were serving. And really seeing the food and the wine as equally, and the beverage program, as equally important and as complementary and seeing, with regard to staff education, seeing the, the work that we did to educate the staff about the beverage being as important as all the tremendous work that we did to educate them about the food and yeah. about Filipino culture. Um, and it was really cool to see over time as the staff education program evolved and became more intensive and detailed and complex. I really loved watching the staff grow also in their interest and um, see them grow in their confidence and their abilities. And I mean, I think that just that process is always like so tremendous to witness and really exciting yeah. to see people be exposed to new knowledge and then to see them synthesize it and really feel like, like it's theirs. Like they're not just mimicking, they're not just repeating a script, but they have their own opinions and they can talk about them and they can yeah. make their own recommendations. And even things like, you know, as, cause our wine list changed a lot for, um, for a small restaurant. Um, it changed a lot. So there was always new information 
to absorb and synthesize. And one of my favorite things was watching the staff come up with their own pairings for dishes. No, oh, cool. Because that was often an exercise that we would do during our lineup, our staff meeting that we would have before service is like, okay, if there's a new dish, if there's a new wine, what would you recommend? Why would you recommend it? Why yeah. does it work? Would this work? Yeah. If it wouldn't work, why not? You know, just like having those conversations and seeing how excited people would get about them and then also seeing them put them into practice and seeing them talk to a, a guest who was new to the restaurant who might be a little nervous about like trying a Serbian wine made with a varietal they've never heard before. Yeah. You know, like how do you, how do you make that person feel comfortable trying something so unfamiliar? Yeah. And I just always loved seeing how each person on the staff like developed their own way of having that conversation that was like so expressive of themselves. Mm -hmm individually and also really demonstrating the depth of their knowledge yeah yeah and, and honoring you know what you were trying to bring together yeah uh, for the sake of the food and wine experience um this equally appeals to me as, as kind of a, a a representative bottle in terms of the things that you served at bad Saint because it's from the great white north i mean i can't think of a you know set of growing conditions that could be more different than the philippines i mean which is a still i mean not quite on the equator but almost and um, you know, this is a, a vineyard. Um, it was launched by a, a father-son team. Uh, we're drinking a wine that's entirely from a grape called Gamma Ray, uh, which is a, a bit of an oddball. It was uh, uh, developed in the 70s as a crossing of uh, Gamay, which is a grape that a lot of people know. It's the quintessential uh, Beaujolais varietal. And uh, esoteric German varietal called uh, Regensteiner, uh, which is just a great name. That's a great it's German. It's so good. Yeah, that's, that's definitely like a, like a hardcore German uh, <laughs> band, uh, Regensteiner. Um, yeah, that's uh, like a metal band. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, with like, you know, two-minute songs, and they play 30-minute sets, and everybody's like doused in sweat. Um, at any rate, uh, so uh, this crossing um, is early ripening, which is, you know, obviously beneficial in a, in a cooler climate like Quebec. Um, uh, Gamay itself is actually the, the progeny of, of Pinot Noir, and it has Pinot Noir-like vibes um, with some of the, like, um, you know, kind of darker fruits of the forest, mm -hmm. you know. I kind thought of, it was a little mushroomy, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's something that Pinot brings to the table, but Gamay in particular. Gamay's always struck me as, like, um, at once more precocious at times than Pinot, but also um, at times more sinister than Pinot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, this has, like, a little bit of both of those, you know, yeah, kind of totally. qualities. There's, like, a... There's like a murkiness to it. Yeah. Not in terms of the look of it, but in terms of the flavor, like that it has unexpected depth for how light it is. Yeah, totally, totally. It's just something like, um, uh, there's this online um, commenter that, that said it was like, like, um, like compared to like a wolf stew yes. or something. Yeah, so, uh, and it, it brought to mind like Peter and the Wolf to me. For yeah. some reason I heard like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's yeah. like the bassoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, that, that was my bassoon imitation for those of you playing along at home. Uh, but, um, you know, it has something that in it. And, and it's equally kind of a, it's, it's a wacky wine because the only part of the reason they can make wine here is they actually blanket the vineyard in the winter with uh, these like geothermal tiles. Uh, otherwise, the grapevines would, would probably like uh, perish because they conk out at, you know, minus 20 and it gets that cold in Quebec. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they're chasing ripeness throughout the summer, but it's, it's a precocious, kind mm -hmm. of fun, festive, fruity little number. Yeah, actually, and the name of this producer alludes to the climate because Nival means, like, snowy. Oh, yeah. So um, 
yeah, I was just so drawn to everything about this wine and this producer. And I also thought that, you know, after the summer that we've had with, especially all over the world, really, but as, especially in Europe, the heat, I, I feel like was in certain places so unprecedented. And I just feel like since we know that this trend will likely continue, I think it's really going to transform Get our ideas. Get used to more Quebecois wine. Yeah, yeah. of yeah, yeah. what, where wine meets totally. regions are. Totally, totally. Um, uh, and what is the, I want to give you a chance to trot out your beautiful French accent, uh, G. What is, what is the name of this particular cuvee? So the name of this cuvee is Un de Secatre, which has a few meanings. So literally, it means one of the four. Um, and with regard to this producer, it refers to the fact that Gamaray is one of the four varietals that they grow um, on their estate. And the others are uh, Pinot Noir, Vidal, which is a, a hybrid white varietal, and Albarino. So Gamaray is just one of the four that they grow. But it's also an idiomatic phrase in French that means like, un de ces quatre, it's like un de ces jours, or like, one of these days, or like at some point, or like sometime soon. And it's sort of like an inside little wink, wink, nudge, nudge joke because it alludes to the difficulty that they had growing gamma ray in this very northern climate. So they were like, oh, one of these days we're gonna make a wine with this frickin' gamma ray. Like, yeah. <laughs> and happily, they figured that out. Yeah, no, they, they nail it. And, um, and it's really exciting to me. And, and, um, you know, in as much as Bad Saint was very much a creature of DC and populated by, you know, people that came to the city, you know, attracted by, you know, altruistic aims and, you know, turned that energy um, uh, in, you know, none the, like, I, I think hospitality culture has its own levels of altruism that are worth celebrating both, um, you know, kind of turn their interest um, uh, to, you know, other, other pursuits. Um, so, you know, Bad Saint, you know, I want to claim as a DC institution, but um, it always felt to me like a restaurant that like reflected the, the, some of the spirit character of like Montreal, uh, which is one of my favorite food scenes in the world. And um, they have an amazing wine culture there as well, uh, centered around natural wine. Um, Canada's kind of wild. All the provincial liquor boards do most of the wine buying, which can mean if you're like a citizen of Saskatchewan, you get stuck with a lot of like, you know, derivative boring stuff. But if you're lucky enough to live in Quebec, um, the provincial liquor board has amazing fucking taste. And so you get access to a lot of stuff that we don't stateside. And, um, you know, there are amazing uh, wine professionals uh, throughout, you know, Montreal and Quebec City in particular, like driving, um, you know, the natural wine movement even before, you know, people were talking about natural wine in, you know, New York. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a thing in Quebec because they had this, like, direct line mm -hmm. to, you know, Paris and to, you know, these natural wine bars where that culture first evolved. And, um, yeah, I, I just felt, you know, like something of, you know, the spirit of that city and that place, you know, resided a little bit, um, you know, within, within Bed Center. Mm -hmm. That's such a big compliment. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> well, no, it's, just, it's just one of my favorite food cultures. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think you also embodied this spirit of Filipino culture in this really amazing way. Obviously, French-Canadian is very different, but, mm -hmm. you know, Quebec is one of the few places you can go in north, well, in, in you know, uh, north of, of the Rio Grande and, and feel like you're in a different country, you know? Yeah, for sure. I feel like Quebec and Montreal in particular, they are very much in the new world, but they have, like, 
a very old world sensibility. Totally. And if you parachuted down into Montreal, you could easily think you were anywhere yeah, in yeah. Europe. Yeah, and I mean, um, New Orleans has those vibes, but they're different, you know? Right. Um, and there's, there's something like distinctly American, you know? Very. It's, it's like a fusion, yeah. but, you know, and, it, and it's a separate culture that's right. like distinct within, you know, the States. But, um, you know, I, I dug that about Bad Saint. It, it had, you know... Um, you know, it felt distinctively of a place, but also distinctively representative of Filipino culture and, you know, down to all of these flourishes for the sake mm-hmm. of the Mahjong tiles that, you know, line the walls for the sake of the, you know, Filipino punk zine mm-hmm. covers that, you know, line the bathroom walls. It just felt so loved, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it just felt like such uh, this like level of universe building that was like, you know, uh, it was like Tolkien, you know, but like existing within, you know, this, this minute space. Uh, I think that was a challenge that we were very excited about was like how to create a vibe in the space and how to create a feeling which um, I think most people probably wouldn't realize how hard that is. Yeah. Um, Especially when the space that you have is so limited. But we really tried to look at it, the the physical limitations of the space as being like a creative challenge. And I, I actually really, really thrive creatively in strict parameters. Yeah. And um, so it was something that we really felt, we thought carefully and deeply about was how to create a feeling and how to design a space and also a style of service where the broadest possible spectrum of people would feel welcome no matter who they were, no matter where they were from, no matter how much they were gonna order or how much experience they had with Filipino food or even dining out in the city. Um, and and, and I, I'm, I hope that that intentionality came across and it was something that we worked so hard on like every, every day. Yeah. And that it was really, I think the tough thing about like creating a vibe is that it's not like just one thing. Yeah, Or exactly. it's not even like five things. It's just, it's just gestalt, you know? It literally is every single thing yeah. mobilized to achieve a certain objective. Well, and it's fascinating in the context of, you know, um, immigrant cuisines. A lot of times I think the temptation, the vector is, you know, one that's watered down. So let's make this more palatable to a broader audience. And um, what I loved about Bad Santa is it felt like a distillation. It felt like you went the other way. <laughs> you made it like maximalisty, you know, Filipino in this like, you know, fun, young, you know, punk kind of way. And, and you know, being in there, um, you know, you felt like you were on the line. I mean, the space was so small, you know, the walks fired at such a temperature, you know, the smells are just, you know, permeating the entire space. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it just, it was the second you walked in that door, you know, clear that you were just inhabiting a different universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that about it. Um, so, uh, for the sake of this first one, I, uh, I wanted to honor the Code Switch guys and, um, you know, talk about, um, you know, these other dimensions of taste that occasionally are musical. So, um, uh, what song? You know, we talked Peer and the Wolf in the context of this already. Well, I, I actually have sort of a tangential connection to wolfishness, but it's probably not what you may expect. So when I was thinking about what soundtrack I would listen to, or what music would be the soundtrack to this wine, um, I went to one of my most beloved Canadian musicians, Joni Mitchell. Oh, nice. So what I would I, play... I thought you were going to say Celine Dion for <laughs> a second. <laughs> 
What I would play while I was drinking this wine is I would play Joni's Hegira album. Love it. Um, On vinyl, naturally. Obviously. <laughs> and I love Hegira because, well, so first of all, Joni's Canadian, so that's sort of duh. Um, second of all, uh, the album came out in 1976, so mm-hmm. she was almost like 10 years into her career. Um, this was her eighth studio album. Um, she wrote it in 1975, 1976, on a series of road trips that she took. Um, And I think during those road trips, she was sort of like processing a a very breakup, a big breakup of like a very consequential relationship in her life. And I feel like um, you can really hear that in the music. Like there's a feeling of expansiveness and... um, space and also confidence like I just feel like the instrumentation and the arrangements are not as busy as they were in some of the albums of her earlier career like Clouds or Blue she kind of it's they're more spare arrangements and for me I feel like that shows her confidence as a musician and um and I also love that about this wine like it's um I feel like there's so much going on, but it's not like trying to flex in the yeah, glass. There is a purity to it, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, so it's all clear. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it 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 hits the complexity of it hits on so many levels, but it like kind of washes over you in waves. Yeah. So like, first off, when I first drink it, I just perceive in the beginning like how light it is. But then the depth of it kind of like hits you as you keep going back to the glass. Yeah. Um, and there's just like so many surprising aspects of it. And I sort of feel like that when I'm listening to this album, that it's like, it feels like it's simple and spare, but there's like so much going on. And also the lyrics are just insane. Like there's so, there's so many stories being told even in just one song. And she does it in this way that's like really super effortless. Yeah. Um, that, that sounds like a, a fun night. That sounds like a, you know, a breakup. Like I just broke up with <laughs> them. I'm going to just like listen to that album and drink this bottle of wine kind of, uh, experience, but a, a, a valuable one nonetheless. I, I think my selection of music was inspired both by this wine in particular, but also maybe it's like a, a reflection of where I am in my yeah. own life in Grieving. a way. Yeah. yeah. And also that. You know, I think of Joni Mitchell so much as being um, like an incredibly influential person in terms of experiencing, uh, in terms of expressing the experience of being a woman. Mm-hmm. And, and that how she articulated that really evolved so much over the course of her career. And, and I feel like this album we're getting like, in Hajira, we're getting like another, a few more facets of what being a woman was like for her yeah. at that moment in her life. And I sort of feel like I'm going through a similar thing, like where for as long as the restaurant was open... That was your life. I felt so conflated with the restaurant and that, that it was such a consuming experience. One was a, it was an extension of you, and you right. were just you know, such, a part of, such an important part of the experience of going to the restaurant as this, um, you know... Uh, amazing, larger-than-life, you know, matrix D 
character fluidly switching from Tagalog to English to Spanish and, and back and forth again and really the face of the enterprise um, in, in a lovely old-fashioned way. Um, you know, I lament, you know, traditionally, like in, in, in the early restaurant era, the, the maitre d' figure was bigger than the chef, was bigger than the... Uh, and, you know, obviously you had the, you know, kind of fortune to work with a lot of really amazing creative people for the sake of Tom Kunen, the chef, and uh, Amanda, the... the you know, beverage impresario, but I think in terms of like the spirit of the place, you embodied that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, it really meant a lot to me to be as involved with the running as the rest of the restaurant as I was, and to be as present physically before service, during service, as as present as I was, and because um, I really just I felt like I was all in. You yeah. know, and I wanted to really demonstrate that to everybody that was involved with yeah. the restaurant. And so now it's, um, I feel like I'm at this really interesting point where because I don't have the restaurant anymore, it's like this opportunity to redefine and also explore. And, um, and I very much, the spirit of that, I felt like I was getting those vibes from this album. I love that. I love that. Um, so that's a kind of a fluid segue to the wine that I selected because it comes from a really amazing um, Viennese winemaker. So uh, this is from Utah Ambersich, and uh, I chose this because honestly, I originally thought that uh, uh, Genevieve was bringing in a, a field blend, which um, uh, this producer also makes uh, uh, for the sake of the four uh, varietals uh, that uh, she named after earlier. But this is kind of um, of a type for the sense of being another cool climate red. So. Um, Vienna is at the northernmost limit of where grapes easily grow um, in continental Europe. Uh, you get uh, these cold winds sweeping down from the Alps onto the Pannonian Plain um, that uh, expands uh, eastward uh, over uh, Austria into uh, Hungary. And uh, in, in Vienna, um, there's a long history of wine. The, the name of the city itself is wine. Um, but uh, it's a, a tradition and a culture that I don't think most uh, Americans, at least, are, are intimately familiar with. Um, there are vines within the city limits. It is one of the few major world metropolises that actually makes any kind of volume of wine. The wine we were just drinking um, is uh, very closely associated with uh, Montreal, but uh, the winery itself is an hour and change uh, north and west of the city. Um, uh, this is even more intimately uh, connected to Vienna, and uh, it's a blend of, of, of red varietals, uh, mostly uh, native Austrian uh, grapes, um, Zweigelt, uh, Blaubergunder, Saint Laurent, um, Merlot, which is not native but exists in Austria, among them. Um, it is uh, made in a, a similar kind of non-interventionist natural style. Um, I love a lot of things about this, and it spoke to me in the context of um, your journey, G. Um, you know, first off, it's kind of an urban wine. Um, it is a cooler climate red. Um, you know, it belongs to this natural wine moment, um, but um, it equally comes from uh, pardon me, a, a woman that, you know, had this other life, had this other career, and uh, came back to the land and embraced um, her heritage um, as a citizen of Vienna and um, as someone that wanted to make, um, and, and she is, is very traditionalist for the sake of working with traditional field blends, harvesting all at once. Um, under Austrian law, you are actually allowed to, you know, 
uh, harvest from different individual vineyards and combine that as Gemistersatz. Mm. Um, Gemistersatz is the style of wine. It means mixed set in German. And um, Utah's is really hardcore. She feels like um, uh, this is a wine that should come from one vineyard and it should be harvested all at the same time. And it should be essentially kind of like a farmer's wine because um, uh, that's historically what it was in Vienna. And um, this is wrapped into this whole culture of um, Hiriga uh, in Austria. And Hiriga are these wine taverns where they serve local food and local wine. And there's this attendant culture of hospitality, uh, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But um, amazing tasting notes for this one. And then I, I came up with a song for this as well, uh, G. But uh, Utah's husband, Marco, does a lot of the marketing um, uh, for the the brand and uh, also writes the tasting notes. And this is one of my favorite tasting notes of all time. Uh, so he's talking about the wine, uh, Ruttberger, uh, which is another native Austrian varietal, Saint Laurent Blauberger Merlot, and a few white wines, uh, probably planted unintentionally, who knows, Vienna 30 years ago, early 80s. Wild times in a city that was not so wild at the time, at least on the surface. Back to wine. Forest soil and fruits, fermented gooseberries, a few scattered cranberries, and a somewhat too inflated dark pink air mattress by the pond. Uh, what an amazing tasting note. Um, especially if you've ever inflated. I mean, like everybody, I feel like that moment of inflating an air mattress for guests, mm -hmm. if you have a small apartment, is hugely relatable. And um, I don't know if you want to drink that, but this wine like uh, delivers a little bit of that kind of savoriness. And that's part of what I love about the genre, the cool climate reds. They, they can be like bright and acid-driven and fruity, but they always have the savory mm -hmm. uh, dimension as well, which makes them super fruity food friendly. Um, thoughts, G? Well, I always love a field blend. Almost no matter what it is. I just feel like this, for me, the strength of the field blend is that no matter what combination of varietals in there, I just love the balance of the field blend and yeah. how um, in, in certain ways it gives you a little bit of everything that you want maybe not always in the ways that you expect, but that you kind of get a little bit of everything. Yeah, there's this choral quality yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, yeah, I dig that about it. And, and I was trying to think of a song for this, um, uh, you know, and, and I wanted to go with a female musician. So I, I had a, a Sushi and the Banshees cover of Passenger felt like a good, so it's like, Ooh. it's up-tempo, but it's just kind of like uh, not so up-tempo that it's like out of control. Um, I, I only had one track, though. I didn't have a full album for you. No, that track sounds really good. I would just play it on repeat. <laughs> do, do and also, I love Susie and the Banshees. Uh, yes, yeah, they're, they're the best. Um, uh, so uh, this wine, you know, like I said, kind of belongs to this um, distinct local tradition of uh, Hurriga or, or wine taverns. And it's, it's funny, the Austrians are hugely hospitable people. Anybody that goes to Vienna utterly adores the place and, you know, gets immersed in this wine culture and... and um, you know, wants to seek it out again and wants to seek out Austrian wine again. But I, I think it's a, a bit of a secret. I don't think it's something that, um, you know, most Americans at the very least commonly associate with Austria. But um, there's equally a culture of hospitality that um, uh, comes with it. And there's actually a German word for it, which uh, I thought you would dig, uh, GV. So there's, there's a German sense. It's like the you know, we had this moment with Higa, or mm -hmm. Higi, like mm -hmm. uh, the, the Scandinavian coziness. Uh -huh. yep. Yeah, there's a German word for that, which is uh, gemütlich. Uh, uh, this, this is very embarrassing. Uh, gemütlichkeit. Gemütlichkeit, yeah. Um, which is uh, a notion of hospitality, but a notion of coziness and belonging oh, nice. in the context of this, like, Viennese tavern scene. So oh, nice. I thought that was super cool. And, and if anyone ever delivered that, I feel like uh, you definitely did. Um, and uh, I, I was, you know, fishing for some quotes and came came up with one that I really adored. Um, 
you were talking about the restaurant and the, you know, the experience of being there and you said restaurants aren't really about food, they're about people. Um, you know, how, did you, how did you deliver that? How did that inform you know, the kind of experience you wanted to create at your own restaurant? I think that um, with what a big, diverse, kind of boisterous restaurant scene DC has grown into, that sometimes you can sort of take your eye off the ball very easily and it becomes about chasing things like chasing a tough reservation or chasing the newest place or like, you know, the hottest chef of the moment. And it's, I feel like sometimes it can start to be about like ticking off a bunch of boxes. Yeah. But for me, and one of the driving forces and one of the things that motivated me most about wanting to open a restaurant was um, just wanted to create a space where people could connect with each other, mm-hmm. with whoever they came with, with us as the staff, um, with Filipino cuisine. Um, and I, I, for me, so much eating and the experience of sharing a meal with someone is just like an elemental human experience. And I really wanted us, through the restaurant, to get back to that idea, is that, you know, whoever you are, when you're standing outside, step over the threshold and just be a person who's hungry and let us take care of you. Just kind of like bringing it back to the basics. And I think that so much of how we wanted people to feel in our space, we would not be able to achieve that if we didn't really understand people mm-hmm. and what it takes to make them feel comfortable or what it make, takes to make them try something new or what it takes to make them feel taken care of. Yeah. And, um, and it, that really doesn't apply just to the guests. I think it applies to um, colleagues and staff. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't achieve any objective if you don't understand each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people that you're working with, the people that you're asking to um, really do tremendous things. Mm-hmm. Um, I always used to say in-house, I always used to say that, you know, our hospitality has to start with each other Mm -hmm. and grow from there. Because if we don't know how to extend these basic courtesies and care to each other, the guests are not going to feel it. Yeah. It has to start with us giving that to each other. And, um, and I think that you know, if it was just about the food, we wouldn't have been able to do all those other things that we were trying to do. Yeah, I think it would have been a good restaurant, but not the, you know, transformational, you know, restaurant for the sake of local dining scene and oh. uh, that, that, it, that it was. Um, so a bit of a verse and then a few more questions for you, G. Um, this is an old favorite from uh, former Poet Laureate. Um, actually, Poet Laureate until this summer. Um, last three Poet Laureates have been uh, female poets. Uh, from uh, Tracy Smith to um, uh, now, um, uh, who's the current, uh, uh, Anna Limon, um, but uh, um, between the two, uh, Joy Harjo. And uh, this is a poem called, Perhaps the World Ends Here. I love this poem. <laughs> uh, the world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it, Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. 
It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies, and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor, falling-down selves as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. I'm very, very moved that you chose this poem because I adore this poem so much. And I think in a really elegant, concise way, I think it so much sums up the feeling that we were trying to create in the restaurant that, you know, I think there's something about like when you feel so comfortable and you're, and you're eating in, in company that you enjoy, it's like incredibly disarming and it's possible to be vulnerable in a particular kind of way. And, um, and that's, that was so much of what we were trying to cultivate and create. And I think that poem encapsulates the best of what happens when we share food with people that we care about. And, you know, just, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and uh, honestly, it reminded me a little bit of your, um, you know, kind of, formative um, pleasure into pain narrative, you yeah. know? So it's just like, you know, it, it just embodies everything, you know, what, what happens, you know, in the context of the meal, you know, takes in the sum of, of human experience. And, and I think, you know, um, you know, and, and some, some people, I, I honestly, I get, uh, I come from um, a pretty white bread background and, and I, um, you know, sometimes, you know, get jealous of the, the immigrant experience for, for the sake of, you know, having that rootedness and, and having that connection to food as this source of, you know, community, as this pillar of um, identity transformation and, and stuff like that. But I think equally, if you're something that loves food and wine, you can create that for yourself. Oh, totally. And, yeah. And, and, and I feel like, um, you know, a lot of what I do is about, you know, finding that and identifying it and um, understanding it in my own way mm -hmm. and making it accessible to other people. Yeah, yeah, exa yeah. exactly, exactly. It, it, and it, it does. It feels like um, I think for those of us that love it, it feels like you know something that you've been let in on. Yeah. Um, you know this 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 secret that you have, and um, you know there is this evangelical zeal about mm -hmm. it. You know, it is something you want to share with people, and and, mm -hmm. and I think the best, you know. Um, Maitrestes, the best sommeliers, you know, however you want to define your role, the best chefs, they, you know, um, they serve delicious things, but they also, you know, um, build that bridge, you know, they uh, bring people in to, you know, what they love, and they give them a glimmer of it, and, you know, kind of empower them to, you know, then grow with it in their, in their own way, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that, you know, way in which it's all transferable is, is that's the secret sauce. And I think, yeah. I think the places where you find that, yeah. um, you know, in whatever context, whether it's a, you know, a restaurant or, you know, mom's home cooking or, you know, a wine bar or coffee shop or whatever, you know, those are the places you want to go back to. I mean, I think it's like the feeling of an invitation extended. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, like everyone wants to feel included. Everyone wants to get the invitation. And it, it always feels special, you know, yeah. like no matter what it is, whether it's like a metaphorical invitation or if it's literally like being invited to a party. Totally. Um, or being invited to learn about something new and, and being welcomed to do that. You know, I think that's just like, that's everybody wants that feeling. Yeah, totally. And I, I think like if it's genuinely offered, yeah. you know, um, it becomes all the more seductive um, in a good way. And, uh, and then I think, you know, on the flip side, when there's just this, you know, it's clear there's this universe, um, you know, that's encapsulated in, in this thing that you're discovering. So, you know, I find that in wine, but I think for the sake of your restaurant, you know, there's just all these details, um, you know, both for the sake of the fabrication of the place, but for the cuisine as well. You know, like you, you talked about the big flavors, but, you know, these are like intricately wrought dishes with, you know, these diverse elements that come together over place and time in unexpected ways. And, you know, I think the, um, the hook there is just like wanting to understand that, you know, and wanting to, you know, live in it and dive deeper into it. Um, and, you know, it's that rabbit hole that you never reach the end of that, mm -hmm. you know, is the one you keep wanting to fall down. Mm -hmm. um, so wanted to ask you, you know, you, you come off this, you know, there's no other way to define it. You know, gut-wrenching moment of, of having to um, close this incredibly special place in Bad Saint post-pandemic. Um, you know, uh, what are your favorite moments uh, of service throughout that run? I thought about this one a lot, and I was trying to think, like, as specifically as possible. Um, there's there's so much that's my favorite <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much that I'll miss yeah but I think that um, to pin it down to something specific even though it was something that happened over and over again that happened at least once a night every single night probably my favorite thing would be like experiencing a true moment of connection with somebody mm-hmm and sometimes that would be a member of the staff. Sometimes that would be a guest sitting down in the dining room. But just that feeling of like, we're two people having a conversation and we share something with each other that makes it possible for us to have like a real connection. Mm -hmm. um, and that just was always magic. Yeah. You know, it was just incredible magic. and. And it's not ever anything that you could contrive. You know, it would just happen spontaneously. Yeah. You know, you start a conversation with someone that starts with one topic and then you meander along through various topics and then you have this moment where you're like, whoa, that's like a profound moment. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll just, to, just to give you a concrete example, um, when we announced that we were closing, uh, there was just this incredible flurry of comments on our post in Instagram, and they were so moving. I literally had to stop reading them at one point, or I told myself I can only read 10 a day, yeah. because they, were, they made me feel so emotional. And one of them was written by this woman, and the story that she told in her little comment, I remembered, and I remembered the night that she came in with oh. her dad. And they had come down from, I think it was either New York or New Jersey, and 
Just to eat at the restaurant? To eat at the restaurant. I think he would, maybe she lives here and he was visiting from out of town. He was definitely visiting from somewhere. He didn't live here. So they sat, they had their meal, and at the end of the meal, I was standing sort of in the middle of the dining room, and they had come up to me to just say, oh, we had a great time, da 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 And then her dad literally took my hands in his hands, and he was like, this is the restaurant that I always dreamed of when I first moved to this country, and I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. Oh. I know. And I just, I, rem- I before I read her comment, I always carried that story around with me because it was just like so moving. Yeah. And it also was like, this is a stranger that I don't know mm-hmm. who just told me this, like, who just shared with me a feeling that he had that just cut right through. Yeah. And it also just made me think of like, of course, my own parents are specifically, but then also there's something so universal in that sentiment that he articulated, just like the experience of being an immigrant and out of place and like that yearning of for home and familiarity. Yeah. And I just was so incredibly moved by him saying that to me. Yeah. And, you know, I always carried that story with me, but then when I saw his daughter in her comment she'd retold that same story Aww. and I was like I remember you I remember talking to your dad and what he said meant so much to me you know yeah. and that was just one example but I, I do really feel so lucky like stupid lucky that I had the experience of connecting with people um, in the context of that restaurant as yeah. much as I did and I have no doubt you'll continue to find ways to connect with people out, you know, outside of the context of, of Bed Saint. Uh, we, we haven't heard the last from you. Yes, uh, hopeful. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, so this is uh, inspired by uh, Code Switch G. I just wanted to you know, sign off with a um, uh, question, quick question. This is kind of equally, it's like a reverse. Do you watch uh, or do you listen to Keep It? I don't. Uh, well, Keep It is like this, um, uh, uh, my, my wife's a huge fan. Um, uh, they ask someone to keep it, it's like a negative thing. So it's like, uh, um, keep it's like, you know. You can have it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do one of each. So like, um, uh, but, but Code Switch makes it, makes it positive. So like, let's do one of each here. So uh, what is giving you life? And then uh, uh, what, what, is your, what is your keep it uh, uh-huh, for, okay. <laughs> for, for the moment? Okay, my keep it, which is very big keep it is what's sort of driving me crazy in this social, cultural, economic, political moment that we are up to our eyeballs in at this moment. The thing that people can keep is their inability to recognize the humanity of other people. Uh, So my keep it was gonna be uh, Ron DeSantis sending people to uh, (laughs) fucking Martha's Vineyard. Which I think is a specific example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's like weaponized cruelty. It's like, you know, elevating cruelty to the most vulnerable into a political virtue. Right, like I don't know when human trafficking became an acceptable political move. Yeah, Um, regardless of your affiliation. Right, and I just think that when I look around so many of the things that are at the root, so the root of so many pr- 
problems and crises that are happening all over the world is in some way related to people being unable to recognize the humanity of other people. Absolutely. Um, so people can keep that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and then to end on a positive note, the thing that's giving me life, and um, since my schedule has changed dramatically, my daily schedule has changed dramatically, as I'm sure you might imagine. And one of the things that I'm really enjoying that is giving me so much life right now is that I have the space and the time to see small beauty in everyday life. That I like, because I have the time and my life is at a different pace, I feel like I can see so many things around me and appreciate the beauty that's around us all the time. And that's like, just to give you another example, and I'm gonna sound like a real woo-woo person now, <laughs> but I was having a really hard day not that long ago, and I got in my car, and I was literally just like weeping. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm like, got waterworks going. At, I'm like two steps away from waterworks at any given <laughs> but time. But it, it goes both ways, though. They, there, there could be good waterworks. Sometimes they're joyful Sometimes, waterworks. Sometimes, yeah, it's, it's good true. waterworks. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On this particular day, it was, you know, I was on the struggle bus. And I got in my car and I just was like, ugh, just like absorbed in this angsty feeling, crying. And I put my seatbelt on and as I reached over my shoulder to get my seatbelt, I saw that there was a ladybug at the bottom of the window inside the car. And I literally just sat there and watched this ladybug crawl around on the window and I don't know. I just was like, hello, ladybug. It was a moment, it was a moment <laughs> of zen. And I was like, yeah. why am I getting my knickers in a twist? There's this beautiful ladybug crawling yeah. on my window. Like, I'm super psyched about that. I'm like so thankful for this quiet moment of just like recognizing another living creature. Or like the other day I was in my backyard and I was going up the, our back stairs. I was about to put my hand on the railing. What was there? But a little grasshopper. <laughs> I'm just like hello. Yeah. I just like marveled at it. Nice. So beautiful. Uh, I can't, you know, being immersed in restaurant life, I can't remember the last time I've noticed a ladybug and or a grasshopper. So I, I know. I, I, probably... I appreciate. I appreciate the appeal of you know, um, you know, kind of downshifting and and being able to recognize the you know the sublime and you know yes. the quotidian expressions of nature. I think we all owe it to ourselves. Yeah. And I, and I do think it's. It's a practice, yes. you know, like, right. like with any exercise, like the more you do it, the more you can do it. Mm -hmm. And I've found that like, because I feel like my brain and my eyes are literally like more open to seeing it, I see more of it all the time. And it honestly is what is getting me through some of these moments in the world, you know, that are just so challenging, deeply challenging and can give us all lots of reasons to not have hope and then I have these like small quiet little moments where I just feel like I can like take a breath and appreciate something that's right in front of me it's like such a gift yeah and it was always there yeah brilliant thank you so much for joining us Genevieve VMR uh, such a pleasure um, where are you you're on the Instagram are you not I am on the Instagram. Uh, what is what is your handle? It is G underscore Villamora. Oh, amazing! Um, and uh, so folks can find you there. 
Um, if you are interested in either of the bottles uh, that we enjoyed uh, and talked about at length today, um, both the Quebecois um, Gamma Ray and uh, the Rotogamister sets from Utah Embersitch, you will be able to find those at Revelers Hour uh, in Adams Morgan, uh, across the street from our Line Hotel Studios. Uh, thank you, as ever, for joining us for our latest episode. Stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of The Universe in a Glass.